Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, everybody. Aaron Hedenstrom here. And this is Drew Zaremba. We're so excited that you're tuning in today. We have a very special guest that we're interviewing for the first time. So Adi Yashaya is a personal hero to me because he's really one of the top arrangers in the country, certainly in the Minneapolis area, which is where I grew up which is where I live now. And so Adi has been one of my personal heroes for years now. And uh, in the last couple of years since moving back to town here, we've gotten to connect and um, get to know each other better. And I've just uh, uh, admired him for a long time. So uh, hello, Adi. Hello, guys. Aaron, Drew, great to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure. So Adi's career has taken a lot of different twists and turns But uh, some highlights along the way have been arranging for Prince, um, being the music director for Whitney Houston. You can go to his website, adiyashaya.com, and see all the different things he's done. But he's been a professor at Berklee College of Music in Boston, and um, just just a stunning resume. So, um, Adi, uh, what we like to start with is... Just kind of a, a broad overview. What got you started in music, and how is that kind of developed into your career? Well, I didn't come from a musical family per se. I I had a brother that played accordion, and accordion was the instrument in the house. And one day I picked it up and started messing with us. And when he heard me, he just taught me how to play a song. And I started taking lessons after that. And my teachers was really, really frustrated because I couldn't read. I, I didn't read well because I memorized everything too quickly. You had a natural ear. Yeah, I guess I guess I did, but that was the beginning. It wasn't very glamorous. I, I got into a lot of <laughs> frustrating moments with my parents that, you know, I don't work on my reading and I don't practice and all that. But that was the beginning. <laughs> well, where are you from? I'm from Israel. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Was your brother a musician? Is, he no, showed he w- you the accordion? Or? He wasn't a musician, but he was a pretty advanced accordion player and uh, basically put it, uh, put it away at some point and went to become uh, he went to medical school. So, okay, there you go. <laughs> and, um, and from there, you know, I basically played accordion for three years and discovered electric organ, and that was really sh- something shiny that I had to have. And I started playing organ first along with uh, top 40 tunes on the radio and later on found myself playing in some bands. And uh, Like a Hammond organ, you mean? or I, I first had an, a simple electric organ. Um, I did have a Hammond, but it wasn't uh, the B3. It was a, a simpler kind of model that yeah. kind of resembled the sounds, but it wasn't the full thing. But... One day, when we rehearsed with our band in high school, our 
vice principal heard us and said that he's going to bring a friend of his to work with us on a regular basis. And um, when his friend arrived, he took a little inventory of who is around and who is available. And we assembled a small band and scheduled a rehearsal. And when we started, when we met, met for that rehearsal, the gentleman brought parts for everyone and a score for himself and he conducted mm. and I just was blown away from the results. I could not believe what I was hearing and that was wow. the discovery of arranging. I was uh, almost 14 at the time and I came to him after the rehearsal, asked him, what is this that you are doing? He says, that's arranging. I said, that's what I wanted to do. Wow. Wow. And I, I had, you know, I had dreams before that about becoming a composer, but arranging was something that really defined me. As much as uh, I wrote original material, I always felt like arranging is my calling because I always felt really confident with taking given material to any kind of direction that was desired, you know. That's wow. amazing. That's amazing. As, uh, as a, a quick follow-up, like, do you have a, do you feel like you flourish, the arrangement is more successful when you are able to give the direction or when someone else says, okay, I need you to do an arrangement for this style, for this amount of time, with this instrumentation? I mean, obviously, it's completely, it's like cooking with different, style, uh, cooking with different foods, but for you, do you feel one speaks to you more? I think that being given some parameters and limitations always gets more creativity out of me. But wow. I, I had experiences in the other direction too when, when I put my own thing together and I wanted it to sound a certain way and kind of followed my own creativity, you know. Yeah. I, I'll tell you what, um, through arranging, I found myself listening to jazz. It was very, you know, natural for me to kind of discover where the the most attractive arrangements were. And through that, I became interested in playing the style. And I really didn't have the, the formal training and, and the direct path that I should. And it started with two guys older than me that encouraged me because they wanted to have somebody to play with. And they used to come to my house and show me tune, jazz tunes and uh, talk to me about modes and scales and voicings and all sorts of different oh, things. And good stuff. Yeah, and, and we would rehearse twice a week and they would also bring a lot of materials. And one day they brought uh, a downbeat magazine and say, you know, check this out. There is a really interesting Bill Evans solo there that uh, you should learn. It's uh, for a tune mm. called uh, I Hear Rhapsody. It was a really great solo, and I didn't really understand what was happening harmonically because he had really interesting minor changes that were shifting minor thirds in a two fives, and that was like, wow, that was over the top. I could not. Yeah, and, and, and of course. And one day they brought uh, another downbeat magazine, and mind you, this is 1975 or six in Israel where downbeat was something that one of the guys knew about because he was a pilot in his 
Oh my god! Occupation. So you'd go to the states and find out what's what's there and and bring stuff to Israel. <laughs> wow! We didn't Holy have the, we didn't have the resources that uh, everybody has now. But um, I also studied. Uh, you know, I started studying with him when I was fifteen. There was uh, an arranger that was like top arranger in Tel Aviv. That uh, I loved what he was doing in terms of the emotional impact to songs. He really always found a way to take it in a direction that you go, wow, this is really cool. So I was really fortunate to, um, to study with him. He was, uh, he was busy enough as an arranger and he didn't have other students, but he kind of took interest in spending the time and it was totally fortune for me. And during the same time, one of the downbeat magazines that these guys brought had an ad for a correspondence course with Berkeley. And what, uh, what, mm-hmm. what was promised in that correspondence course felt uh, impossible. 25 lessons will take you from the basics to a point where you write for any kind of instrumental configuration within horns, so it's like anything from small horn section to full big band, and to be able to improvise in whatever your instrument is. So with, wow. all, with all the skepticism, 25 lessons for $95 felt like a good deal, good bargain, and I got the course, and for $3 that you would put in an envelope, they would also give you feedback from the homework assignments and stuff. But that, wow. cor- that course took me five years to complete. It took me five years because it was endless amount of writing assignments and, and exercise with, with chords and stuff. And I have to admit that what they promised was delivered. I was able to wow. do all that when I was done. In the meantime, I, I was taking lessons with a gentleman for those five years, and I got it kind of from both ends, from, from the sure, jazz, of course. jazz arranging side and from traditional harmony and con- counterpoint and all that. So by the time I got to Berkeley, I, I was already in the Tel Aviv scene as a, both arranger and, and piano player. And... Mm-hmm. I have to say that going there when you're 23 and having a lot of the foundation is the best way to go to these kind of schools because they'll take you the distance in whatever uh, level you arrive. But if you get if you arrive there with a little more, you can really study with the best people. And I have mm. to mention three teachers at Berkeley that are really responsible for what happened after. And the three are Bob Friedman, that is still active as, a, as an arranger. Right, of course. A lot of Grammys and things. Herb Pomeroy, that basically my life wouldn't be the same have I, have I not studied with him. I even got to arrange for his professional band at some point, and I fell on my face because I tried too hard. But he did give, <laughs> me, the, he did give me the chance and Greg Hopkins, that is still at Berkeley and is an amazing trumpet player and arranger. So these three guys are people that I still hold with such high esteem. G- Greg Hopkins, he still runs the 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 big band at Berkeley, right? That, that's right. Yeah. And Bob Friedman is one of my favorite arrangers. Didn't he do Hot House Flowers? He did. With yeah. Quentin Marsalis. Right. Oh yeah. 
In fact, I, I have the handwritten score of uh, Stardust here. Do you oh, really? No yeah, I'll share it with you. He, he'll be happy if I did. So I would love that. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, that's one of my favorite. That, that, that whole album is genius. Yeah. The, the arrangements are so bold, and yet they work so beautifully mm-hmm. with the ensemble. I actually was a student of his when he was uh, writing that album. He announced it one, one time in class, and I went to his office hour, and Bob is one of these guys that uh, never really needed a piano to try anything, and he was wow. sitting in his cubicle at Berkeley without any keyboard or anything, just writing straight to the score. And it's one of those uh, crazy phenomenons that you run into every once in a while. Was there was there a big takeaway from Bob Bob Friedman in particular? I I just don't know a lot. He's as far as he's well known in the arranging world, but outside mm-hmm. of that, you know, a lot of people don't know about him, and right. there's not a whole lot of information on the internet. There isn't. Yeah. Well, he did a lot of impressive stuff for me at the time because I was looking for having a commercial arranger career with a jazz background. You know, my role models at the time were people like Quincy Jones and uh, Don right. Sebesky and people that have done both sides of the aisle. And Bob Friedman came to Berkeley after like three decades in New York and basically started as a teacher and became the chair of uh, the arranging department. And back then Mm -hmm. it was the arranging department. What I liked about working with him is that it was styleless in a sense that he didn't stop in one place. I mean, we were basically analyzing Petrushka in in, um, scoring for Woodwind's class. And that was our source because there was so much interesting material in in Petrushka for for woodwinds that you couldn't come up with anything better than that. And, right. And to this day, I have these handouts of analysis of what's happening in various places on in that score. And this is stuff that he did himself. I th- I think he's a self-taught. I don't know that he ever went to college for music. Wow. He started by by writing arrangements in Boston in the 50s, and one of his first gigs were the Herb Pomeroy Band, and right from there he went and wrote wow. some stuff for um, Maynard Ferguson and stayed in New York at that point. Yeah. So when you were at Berkeley, did you find that you had a lot of opportunities to try your arrangements out with uh, oh, the yes. student musicians? Yes. I, you know... The first thing I did in the first week of my studies there is assembling a six-horn band. Before even knowing that I could go and try stuff with Project Band and other opportunities there, and (laughs) there were so many players and so many ensembles that it was so easy just to take a chart, go to some ensemble room and have it played. And some of these ensembles were, you know, they had performances, so sometimes I would bring a chart, and I remember Ben Elkins was one of the band leaders for some of for one of those ensembles. I think it was called Beck Bay Brass. Yeah. So I brought an arrangement for Beck Bay Brass, and he says, uh, "Can we do it in the concert?" And then I got a nice cassette recording from the concert and stuff. You know, for for a twenty three, twenty four year old student, I mean that's uh, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. And I have to no tell kidding. you that I have. I need to 
transfer it from cassettes, but I have a couple features that I wrote for Herb Pomeroy's student bands, one featuring Donnie McCaslin on tenor, and, and the other one featuring um, Danilo Perez on piano. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a team. So those, those were your classmates, huh? Yeah. They went to school around the same time. Gosh, that's unbelievable. You, you've told me a couple of stories about uh, working with uh, Herb Pomeroy as well and some, some cool stuff that he shared with you in his classes. Do you have anything that comes to mind? The, stuff, the, the, the story that comes to mind right now is it's actually a very interesting thing that I should share with both of you a email exchange I had with Bob Friedman. You might find this interesting, but the, the, the course that Herb was teaching, the, the main course that he was teaching, and, and people were coming from all over the world just for that particular course, was called line writing. And when I got into that course by a recommendation, you should take this course, and I had no idea what this course was about, all this stuff was over my head, and it had so many rules that I did not understand how they add up to what we're trying to do. So Mm. the premise of this course was basically to learn how to write a five-part saxophone soli or brass soli in a linear way as opposed to hanging chords under the lead line. From all the rules that he was trying to establish, I think I remember three I'm talking about probably 75 rules that he had. Oh, my gosh. I retained three or four that I use them not only for five parts solely, but in everything that I do. And I swear by that. And it's basically the idea that the players are your friends. If they like, <laughs> if they like how a line feels they would always be happy to play for you. And every now and then, a player will get you a writing gig. And it never fails, man. It just never fails. So that's one thing that I managed to retain from that course. But there's more to it. Because turns out that the real founder of that course was Bob Friedman. Because now, he doesn't recall telling this to us, but, but that story really stamped my experience in such a way that I insist that he told the class that. When Serge Shalov was the berry player in a Woody Herman band and he was causing all sorts of issues and stuff like this, Bob would get called sometimes to sub on baritone. So the first time he subbed on baritone in the Woody Herman band, he says, you know, I played a lot of big bands before, but I never played in such difficult book and it took me by surprise mm. and out of survival I made sure that all the long notes are going to be right all the notes followed by a leap are going to be right and all the notes followed by rest are going to be right but I'll do my best with fast moving lines and he says "Wow, that was the philosophy and that's how I survived the first set and I felt like I was catching 80% of the, the music. So I made sure to not hang out with any musicians in the break. But when I, came, <laughs> when, I, when I came back to my chair, the tenor player next to me told me, oh, sight reading is amazing, man. 
And during that time, he got the call to teach arranging at Berkeley. He says, I arranged by transcribing uh, Benny Goodman, but I had no idea what I'm teaching. So I started wow. teaching a solely writing course, learning, um, basically using the lessons that I learned from that gig by what if we wrote a solely that the harmonic points are going to go to long notes, lo uh, notes followed by a leap, and notes followed by a rest, and everything else is a linear thing. So you connect the dots somehow. And he said that wow. the students in that class were all saxophone players, and the class was going really well. And in a year or so after that, he decided to follow some offers that he got in New York and leave Berkeley. And that's when Herb asked him, hey, Bob, would you mind if I take your concept and kind of continue developing? He says, yeah, man, I didn't invent wow. anything, so use it. And that became Herb's product because he kept going. And so that was a really interesting uh, email exchange with uh, So with essentially taking any note. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like taking a note, think basically whenever you, your first note after a rest, your note after a leap, and long notes, those are vertical structures. Right. And then everything in between is just make a line happen, maybe in the scale, maybe not, or something. And Herb had a little more consistent approach to it. He says, if you sure. have a chromatic approach in the lead, make sure that you have a chromatic approach in, in the line, even if it doesn't right. go to a chord tone, but make sure that it's a chromatic, uh, a chromatic approach to a scale note or, or to an intention or something like that. You know, he had a lot of interesting techniques, but more than anything, Herb's style was something that if I could have 10% of his personal approach and musical approach and his memory of people, my goodness. You know, he came to Minneapolis with his big band in 1991. And because in, he hasn't toured for 30 years following, uh, uh, leading into that, his old students all came to the Dakota, to the old Dakota in St. Paul. And in the break... You know, of course, he recognized me because I started with him just a few years before. But in the break, you know Steve Devich, trombone player in town? So during the break, I hear you, I hear him go, Steve, is that you? What was it, 64? Yeah, it was 64, you remember? Yeah, what happened to your hair? <laughs> Whoa. You know, I'm talking about recognizing a student of his from 1964, and we are now then uh, in 1991, and there were several of them that. Wow! And he gave them all great attention. It was such wow. a. By the way, he never stood up in a rehearsal. He always sat down because he wanted to be in the same eyesight, eye level with the players, knowing them all by names, in the second rehearsal. There was never, hey, a third trombone, give me. No, it was Jay. I need you to. Mm. So his rehearsal technique was something that I wish I spent more time in really mastering because he really had it down. Wow. That was Herb, man. That's beautiful. So once you got done with Berkeley, then what, what did you, uh, what, what was next? Well, um, 
I met my wife in Boston. She was actually a singer and ended up going to Berkeley after that. But for me, after graduating, the obvious thing to do was to go back to Israel. And we went together and lived there for a, a, year, a little more than a year and ended up going back to the States, first to Boston. And then we came here because she was originally from uh, the Twin Cities and her family was here. And life started, you know. We had our first baby that turned 29 today. Oh, my, my girl is 29. Wow, that's, yeah. that's great. <laughs> so uh, that's it. I was um, working locally, doing playing and teaching and writing when I could. And um, shortly after that, I realized that I'm not finding the opportunities to to arrange as I was wishing to. Right. So I assembled my own big band, and it, actually Debbie was our singer. Okay, yeah. And uh, we played every Sunday at the old Dakota in St. Paul, and all, all the good players were there. You were too young. You would <laughs> have been there, but... Yeah. <laughs> but that was a really good run. I mean, I, I put a band that wasn't a full-size big band. I... I kind of took the whole uh, idea after Maynard's um, 56 band that mm. Herb actually reduced his full band to a similar configuration. Mm-hmm. But it basically had four saxes and five brass. Right. And there was something really nice and light about this. So it was actually a jazz big band as opposed to a big band that were playing kind of... Uh, dance uh, da- dance material it was uh, more right. like a bop kind of thing and then when you say five brass is that two trumpets three trombones or uh, three th- three trumpets two trombones okay all right uh tenor and bass or just two, mostly uh, I, most of the time i didn't use bass trombone but sometimes wade clark would play in the band sure, sure. and i would write every once in a while some some tunes that could use a little bass trombone but uh, sure as a tangent, uh, is that is it because uh, the baritone sax can kind of fill that sort of that space in the music, or did you did you think about that, or I didn't really think a lot about that. And uh, years later, when I checked some of my scores, I realized, oh yeah, you know what, I'm writing a little high for um, for that kind of configuration, mm. and uh, trombones <laughs> were playing pretty high in that band for mm. whatever reason. Sure. Mm, yeah, it's it, energy, spice. Uh, sure was, yeah, yeah, fire. <laughs> yeah, you were saying that you were uh, you made yourself this big band, and because you weren't finding the opportunities that you were uh, hoping for, so you created your own opportunities, essentially. So I created this particular um, situation, and um, one day I got a call from a librarian in the Minnesota Orchestra that used to come and check the band every every now and then. He says, I loved your band, and Doc Severinson is now doing the Pops Orchestra, and um, he's looking for an arrangement for Neil Hefty's Cute. Can oh you do God. something like this for orchestra? And I said, sure. He says, okay, so um, here's when we need it, and here's when the rehearsal is. And I was so 
excited and so afraid at the same time. Of so I'm, course. I'm bringing, <laughs> I'm bringing my very first arrangement to the Minnesota Orchestra with mm. Doc conducting. Wow. And I asked permission to watch the rehearsal, which they granted. And I sat there and waited and waited and waited. Nothing happened. And the orchestra um, personnel manager came to me at some point and asked, did they tell me that you are a piano player? I said, yeah. Um, our piano player is sick. Can you cover the rehearsal? No way. Yeah. I said, uh, yeah, I can try. You know, I never saw myself as a strong player. But if it was kind of um, jazz writing, commercial arrangements and stuff like this, I could probably cover the rehearsal. With Doc came to me after the, ge- after the rehearsal and asked me if I can do the whole weekend. You know, somehow the stars aligned enough to not put too difficult stuff in front of me. And I was able to cover it. <laughs> and we became kind of friendly for a while. And he used to call me for arrangements. Every time he would come to town, he would like to do something uh, special and stuff. Mm. So somehow I got into wow. the roster of the arrangers for the Minnesota Orchestra and got to do a whole bunch of stuff for them, which was fantastic. It was so well, nice. That's perfect. Yeah. That's perfect. You do you don't know Alan Baylock by any chance, do I you? I know his name, and I, I heard some music of his on, on our radio station because uh, there's a, a radio program here um, of big band music, and the guy that hosts this really, really likes his writing. He's out of L.A., right? Alan is, he was the Airman of Note uh, oh, yeah. staff arranger for yeah. 25 years. And he just took the, like a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now, took the position teaching at UNT, one o'clock lab band. Oh, what a lucky bunch of young players yes. to have. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He, he, he's a dear friend of mine. We play ping pong every week. And we've actually interviewed oh. him on the show. And, That's wonderful, uh, man. It is. It is. And um, I, I mention him because he's done some writing for Doc uh these last sure. several years um, for different projects. And uh, so I didn't know if y'all had connected on, on the doc level or not. Well, I tell you, I saw Doc doing something with Airmen of Note not too long ago, maybe a recording or, or a concert or both. Yeah, Alan did. I'm sure Alan did most of the arrangements sure, for that. Yeah. I think that was maybe, yeah, just a couple years ago, probably. So, so I thought the writing was phenomenal. I thought the writing yeah. was fantastic. Alan, yeah. something else. Yes. But that's beautiful. Wow. What a gig. Doc and then getting to play piano with him. <laughs> yeah, man. This is, uh, honestly, I didn't deserve it, but I enjoyed it. What did you take away from that first time, you know, hearing your arrangements played with a professional orchestra? What I took was, I don't know what I'm doing because my arrangement was played w- one tune before a Tommy Newsom arrangement, and I'm going, huh. why is oh, a, his arrangements are so great, and why is my stuff sounding so pale? That's what I took from uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> you got to give yourself more credit than that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I spent quite a bit of time in with self-doubt, so 
but now I feel like I'm be, I'm I'm among friends, so I can actually say it. Okay, so then, uh, so you started picking up some work. It sounds like at the, about that point. Right, and um, when I had all this exposure from playing the big band, I started getting calls to produce singers' CDs in town. Mm. So I suddenly found myself becoming more like a record producer and putting a whole bunch of arrangements for singers. And uh, it was a wave of uh, maybe between 10 and 20 CDs that I was doing locally. That Some wow. of them had uh, smaller bands, some of them had larger bands, and every once in a while I could get some strings and woodwinds for those. So it was a really interesting way to kind of branch out into a little more orchestral writing, which probably was a good time to do that because um, I found with time that if you are defining yourself as a as a big band arranger, it's really difficult sometimes to to branch into the production side of things. And mm-hmm. so somehow I found uh, plenty of opportunities to arrange in other styles of music and kind of uh, got more into a little more traditional writing, which was beautiful for me because it's the first time that I really got to use some of the tools that I actually started with mm. with my teacher in Israel. That's that's fantastic. And it, it that, I mean that's the dream really, you know, that we have that there's enough work out there that we get to flex all of our different muscles and and use all the tools that we've honed over yeah. the years. It seemed like there was a lot of recording in the Twin Cities at the time. That's at the awesome. time, there was. And uh, there was also a local record company that kept a lot of uh, uh, local musicians uh, working, mostly doing production work, but some, some playing as well. The record company was called Compass Records, and their line of uh, product was holiday music, nature, all sorts of themes... Um, meditation music, a lot of different kind of consumer-friendly uh, CDs for um, for Target, and Target was selling those CDs in a kiosk. I remember that when right. you, you'd walk down the aisle, and right. there'd be like a little uh, end end cap or whatever where they you could kind of sample the right the yeah. the songs. Okay, yeah. So I've done maybe twenty five or thirty CDs for them uh, over those years. Wow. And the very last one was a big band CD that they flew me to Toronto to do because all the work that they were doing was locally. And they were purchased by a company in in Toronto. And I got to do one CD, and that was a big band. Always easy listening kind of stuff. But um, Now, now were you working as the arranger or the composer and the arranger or the producer or all the above? You know... uh, Every project required something slightly different. I did a lot of sure. uh, original material and arranging and sometimes just flat-out producing. I had a Chopin record that I worked with a classical player and huh. uh, basically produced all these uh, nocturnes and uh, mazurkas. Really? And, yeah. I'm a pianist, too. Uh, I, I play, And I remember playing some of those mazurkas and, and nocturnes. I admire Man. you already. How how do you how do how does one produce a classical piece uh, when you know especially just solo piano? Uh, how, what 
Tell me about that. Uh, I had the same question getting into it, but uh, <laughs> the the the, um, the product was uh, the guideline. It's like this has to sound as good as possible, and uh, because we were already in the age of technology that I could record it and edit it. Uh, the mm. piano player would uh, say, well, I'm going to attempt now going from bar 23 to 63, and I'll give you two right. takes, and uh, I'll have two takes to choose from, and sometimes I would have to edit within those takes and trying to get to the best possible performance. Wow. So, yeah, just like modern classical style recording of yeah. ch ch doing it in chunks and... Writing it and then splicing it all together. Yes. And at this point, you were using uh, Pro Tools, or the studio was using Pro Tools? Yeah, and actually I do a lot of my work in uh, Digital Performer. Okay, And sure. um, stuff like this I would do at home because um, I'm, I'm comfortable finding all these edits and, and cutting it. And sure. it's a lot harder trying to com communicate with an engineer to do that because yeah. you're very specific about uh, with you with editing piano there are a lot of issues like uh sustain notes pedal and right, stuff like that so, yeah yeah so you have to be really careful when you do that yeah because i mean when i think of producer uh i i always think of changing the arrangement adding elements uh Uh, taking away elements, coaching the singer on their vocal performance, you mm -hmm. know, like, yeah. but with solo piano, classical, <laughs> there's, I mean, it's really just interpretation and expression, If uh, I mean, and space, p potentially. Right, and, and you're really guided by your heart in, in situations wow. like this. You don't have a lot of brain going into it. You're sure. following the, the music, But it needs to move you at the end of, you know, at the end of the day. You have to be moved by that, and it's right. not just about precision. And yeah. yeah. So were you pretty, uh, pretty slammed with work at, during those years? I mean, were, were, were yeah. you? Were I was you really yeah. busy. I was very busy, and uh, throughout those years, I, I, you know, I always try to stay busy because I always defined myself as an arranger primarily. And um, even in the years that I was teaching full time, there was always I always made sure that I would have enough writing work waiting at home. I mean, Drew and I are you know we're we're young, fresh out of college, whatever, mm -hmm. and we're um, learning how to sort of balance all of those different responsibilities as as freelance musicians. Did you kind of learn anything about how to manage all of those projects? I don't think you ever learn that. It's uh, it's really interesting. There, you you experience you ex you experience uh, the phenomenon of uh, time warp. Sometimes you are accomplishing so much in so little time that looking back, you go, "I can't believe I was able to do that." Mm. It's just impossible. <laughs> And then you have times that you're so unproductive. You can, cannot come up with three-bar intro in three weeks. You know, it's like, right. oh, I can't deal with this. And <laughs> so the management is um, is almost like uh, out-of-body experience. It's like when you have to and you have no choice, you can do everything. You know, mm. when I started working for The Voice a few years ago. 
the first wave of work was unhuman. Mm. You know, it was impossible to get everything that they wanted to get done. It it got done. I don't know. I mean, wow. Uh, wow. So speaking of that particular gig, yeah. How d- how did that come about, and what was the relationship with the the folks there? You know, they told us back at school that our career started when we were still there. You don't know who you're meeting, and you don't know who mm. you're making an impression on. And the calls would come from all sorts of places. The call to uh, for The Voice came from a good friend of mine named Matt Rohde. Matt is a keyboard player in L.A., and he's married to a friend of mine, and he also lived in the Twin Cities for a couple of years. And he always knew that I'm an arranger. His gig for The Voice started as an arranger, but that's not the main thing he does. He, he produces music and he plays piano. I initially got the call because he was doing work for American Idol when he was called to do The Voice, and he was juggling between the two until they hit the first season finale. So when he realized how much stuff was going on in two programs that were going through season finale, he decided to reach wow. out for help. And the call was to help him during that 10 days of the season finale, and, and I did. And, and I, th- I think what they realized at that point is that the amount of music that they are trying to get through requires more than one person. Mm. So I managed to continue getting calls after that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take that with me. I'm going to steal that from you. If you don't mind, your career starts now. uh, Oh, you know what? I stole it. So feel free. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.